Okay, uh, I'm speaking in my capacity as Chairman of International Drug Policy Consortium, which is an NGO network, a global network of NGOs who've come together, quite a broad church of NGOs who've come together through a sort of shared, like-minded concern that drug policy uh, does need to be reformed and improved for the 21st century and does need to uh, pursue uh, a little bit more of, of evidence-based and human rights principles than it has in the last 50 years. So... Uh, Generally, IDPC, as I say, it doesn't particularly have a manifesto or a, a particular um, solution, but basically it says that what we're doing at the moment isn't particularly effective, so we've got to be big enough to think of new things. I'm going to try and cover four things uh, under the broad heading of international lessons. Uh, I'm going to play with this idea of what I'm, I'm terming the stages of drug policy. So the first slide will be about uh, what I think is the stages that uh, our governments go through in their uh, responses to drug problems in their country. Then I've got a, a slide on regional differences, which is, is my attempt to say to you that what we get into the habit of when we're talking from a, a Western European or a post-industrial rich society talking about drug problems, we have our history. We have to remember that different parts of the world have very different histories, very different current challenges. So we, we've got to be careful about being... Uh, too developed country-centric in this. But I'm afraid that's the only slide where I give a nod to that. The third one is what I call inconvenient truths, which is basically the reason why the preferred drug policy of the international system is not, is not something we can all sit back comfortably and say, uh, uh, this is going fine, let's leave them to it. And finally, some attempt to draw out some very broad and very macro lessons for the future. That's what I'm going to try and do in the next 15 minutes. Stages of drug policy. Come up with these four phrases. They're not particularly accurate. They're not particularly linear either. There is a, I'm going to try and describe them in terms of a linear process. But um, in different <coughs> government systems, in different versions of history, things have happened not necessarily in exactly that order. But generally, once again, from a Western European, UK-type perspective, I think this is the four stages we've gone through. Enthusiasm. Uh, I, I do this from uh, a UK perspective over 50 years. Yeah? We're coming up next year to the 50-year anniversary of the um, 1961 Single Convention, which is basically when the UN global system took that big leap from being a, 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 a group, of, group of disparate agreements into being this is what the world is doing about drugs. And at that time, all, the, all, the, all my reading about it, and certainly by the time I came into the field in the 80s, we could, we could characterize that period, certainly amongst uh, North America, Western Europe, and, uh, and the countries that, that sort of were dealing with uh, drug problems in a, in a policy way. That was a period of enthusiasm. I think there was genuine, there was genuine debate in those days. You know, if you look at the, the debates around the 61 Convention, 71 Convention, you know, there was genuine debate. Should we prohibit drugs so strongly? It was all out there. It was all de debated. But generally, if you talk from a government perspective, governments were very enthusiastic about the world coming together under a shared responsibility and trying to stop this drug problem. And there was no, there was no evidence then that to say that if you pursued basically a supply-led policy, a, a deterrence-led policy, a law enforcement-led policy, that it wouldn't work. Of course, there's lots of debates and lots of people saying, well, we're not, we're not sure about that, but... Uh, Generally, that was the period of government enthusiasm. So, as a result, you have a single convention, very much driven by the US particularly at the time, but uh, some other countries as well. A single convention that pretty quickly most of the world's governments signed up to, and, and you'll have heard it announced all over the place that uh, some version of those conventions, there's 192 countries signed up to, 185 are signed up to the whole suite of the conventions. 
so in those days, I would say you would, you would summarise that as national governments were genuinely enthusiastic about, we are worried about a growing drug problem, which I'm sure you'll, you'll, you'll re, well, remember or agree that in 1961, there wasn't a massive drug problem in the world, but there were things to uh, be concerned about and trends to be concerned about. But then there was government enthusiasm to say, this is the way we should respond. And to very simply characterise, say, the, which, the way we should respond to it is we will try to stop the production of these drugs. Obviously, prohibition is the structure. We will try to stop the production. We will try to stop the distribution of these drugs across borders. And we will impose laws and enact those laws, enforce those laws in a way that deters people from becoming involved in using those drugs or any, any role in the market. And that was the theory behind it and even in the 1961 convention and before there are nods to you also need to have treatment, you also need to have education, you also need to have health care. But generally that was an enthusiastic endorsement of that paradigm uh, which I think pretty much existed in government terms right through the 60s and 70s. And, and for most of the 80s. That's given um, backing by the, by the relatively uncontroversial package of the 1988 convention. Basically what the 1988 convention was about is strengthening that system. So once again, governments gathered, 100, 190 governments gathered in the, or, or worked through the 1980s to strengthen that system that they were enthusiastic about. So once again, while there were debates through the 1980s in Western European governments, in uh, Australia and, uh, and North America, while there were debates through the 80s about this was not the right way to go, this was not an effective system, it had uh, negative consequences, from a government perspective, uh, in the run-up to 1988, there was pretty much no doubt that there was consensus across the governments that we should try and strengthen this system and fill in the gaps and uh, increase the penalties and so on and so forth. So we're still in the period of enthusiasm through the 80s. And I would say the 1988 represents, in, in, in UN terms, that was escalation. You know, government saying, we have this prohibition system, we have this, these powers to arrest and deter and target users, we have these budgets and powers to try to uh, stop the cultivation and distribution of these drugs, but they don't seem to be working, so how we respond to that... Uh, uh, sorry, they don't seem to be solving the problem so how we respond to that situation is we escalate our powers. Yeah? And that, well, different versions of that have been going on in different countries, uh, well, is still going on now. But in global terms, you would say through the 80s, that was a period of escalation. So, and a lot of countries passed laws through the 80s, uh, particularly Western countries passed laws in the 80s, which ramped up their uh, penalties and ramped up their, their ability to fight the baron. I would say, um, my own experience, I came into government in 97 in the UK, and my own experience is that around that time, I think we were moving from escalation to symbolism in sort of um, in UK national policy. Because of various accidents of history, Tony Blair and drug czars and um, uh, having a lot of money, which seems a long time ago now, but having a lot of money to spend, having a, a, a pretty strong and vocal healthcare and treatment sector in the UK. Of course, in the UK, what actually happened in the budgets and the programming is that we spent a lot of money on treatment particularly. But if you look at it high-level politics... We were, we were still, we were sort of, um, this is why it's not linear, we were kind of going from one to the other between enthusiasm and symbolism. First year or two of the, the Blair administration, I'd say we were in a period of enthusiasm, pretty much by, led by Mr. Blair's uh, views himself. He really thought that with the money we had and with the uh, agencies we had and the uh, uh, expertise we had, he would be able to, or the government would be able to over five or ten years to make a really big sea change in the nature of UK's drug problem. 
So all that stuff you saw in the drug strategy that I was involved in, which is about, well, we can significantly reduce, reduce the overall prevalence, we can significantly reduce the harms, we can significantly reduce crime. All of that was, you know, some of the technicians inside like me was, well, I'm not sure we can reduce the prevalence, but, you know, it looks good on the paper. You know, the politicians then actually believed that. They thought if they really pushed on the drugs issue, they would be able to show the electorate a very big change over five or ten years. So we were in kind of an enthusiasm phase. That's why big budgets came out in the late 90s. But it pretty quickly moved to what I now call the symbolism phase. And I think that's what we're in in UK policy at the moment, is the conclusion of this government, anyway, is that drug policy is too hard. You can't show a big success easily to, um, to the public, and you can't get any credit for a big success. So what do you do? You retreat into symbolism. And that's my interpretation of what's going on politically around the cannabis nonsense that we've had the last five years, is that politically, people who don't particularly involved in the details of implementing drug policy, what they retreat to politically is say, well, we have to have something we can tell the public. By all means, we'll spend good money on good projects and keep the, keep the good professional work going on. But the political work is moved back to symbolism. Yeah? We don't try to meaningfully say to our electorate or our media, we are, uh, we are going to solve this problem by three years, five years, ten years. Uh, what we do is uh, uh, put out symbolic stuff like reclassifying can cannabis. And I think that's where we are politically in the UK at the moment. And both parties are playing that at the moment, particularly in an election year. The, the fourth stage, which I think is, it's hard to say whether this is inevitable or not, or linear, but the fourth stage is, you know, at some stage you have to accept that an awful lot of what we're doing is unsustainable, at the very least, not the best use of uh, scarce resources, and you move into a, a, comfort, a, a reform stage. And what I mean by a reform stage is the political system and the public debate is comfortable with the idea of we have to move on, we have to change, we have to develop. And I don't think we're there yet. I'm not, uh, there are certainly strong movements uh, for reform in different parts of the world, but generally we're not in a situation in any country where you can say the public administration is entirely comfortable with saying we know we've got to reform, let's have a debate about it. Everybody says, you know, everybody who gives a speech about drugs usually says we need a debate, um, but they don't really mean it. Yeah. So I, I don't think, um, I don't think uh, and there's anywhere in the world where, where the, the politics is entirely comfortable with saying it ain't working, let's reform. There's sections of the politics, and I'll talk about that in a bit in, in terms of the region. So that's a, a, I'm concluding now, that's a really clumsy attempt to talk about different uh, stages of drug policy, but I think it sets the scene in terms of different different macro-political uh, situations we find ourselves in. In terms of regional differences, as I say, we just need to remember that it's not the same in other parts of the world as it is here. What I've just described as the stages of, of the last 50 years pretty much applies across Europe, Europe North America, and Australia, Australasia. And even within Europe, you know, there's a very uh, significant difference between old Europe and new Europe about how they've had to, governments have had to deal with the drugs issue and the challenges they face and how they've reacted. But generally, that, uh, that move from uh, enthusiasm to escalation to symbolism has, has happened in most of those sort of developed countries. If you look at Southeast Asia, and I'm, I do apologise for a really quick Cook's tour through it, if you look at Southeast Asia, they've been in a very long escalation phase. Southeast Asia has had to deal with major drug problems for a good 20 years or so now. Um, on, the con on the production side, inter uh, on the distribution side and the consumption side, and still the predominant government response is uh, enthusiasm for enforcement. There, there, once again, lots of interesting initiatives going on in uh, Southeast Asia, but by and large the government approaches is uh, still very much faith in get tougher, get tougher, 
and you'll defeat the problem. Obviously, the most uh, graphic representation of that is, is now, sort of a long time ago, it seems uh, only yesterday, but a long time ago, is where Thailand, uh, under Shinawatra, uh, uh, pursued its war on drugs, which basically said uh, uh, it's okay to, uh, for the law enforcement authorities to break every rule in terms of jurisprudence, every rule in terms of human rights protections, because drugs are such a threat to our society, we must really get tough on it. And, of course, anybody say Thailand did that, uh, thousands of people died, and um, as a result, the drug problem uh, moved around and changed a bit, but didn't really uh, go away. So Southeast Asia is pretty much still in that. If you go to any Asian uh, government conferences, talk to any Asian government drug czars and all that sort of thing, they're still pretty much in the, if only we can get our law enforcement uh, uh, activities right, then we'll eventually beat the problem. Still very strong culture over there. Africa's really at early stages of this, and there's an interesting situation in Africa. The, the work, work that Reuter and Boyum, particularly, and uh, to some extent McCoon have done, which talks about stages of epidemics, actually says that it may be indicated that if you focus on law enforcement and interdiction and uh, classic control uh, activities, that actually may be much more, have a much better chance of working at the early stages of drug epidemic. And there is an argument that it, that is what is the situation in Africa, certainly five years ago, maybe it might be too late now, but there is, I think, a fair debate in Africa. There is not any history at all of drug strategy development in Africa, that's very worrying. And Africa is classically, they're in that enthusiasm stage, which is we've got a problem boiling, so what are we going to do about it? We instinctively say we must beat the problem and do the classic. Um, you know, we need to beef up our law enforcement and uh, strengthen our laws. There is an argument in the literature that in, a, in, a, in any given situation that might, uh, that might actually uh, uh, prevent epidemics that would otherwise happen. My guess is that in most parts of Africa, definitely West Africa now, that probably the genie's out of the bottle and it's too late even for those sort of strategies. Latin America, I'll talk very quickly, is about um, reform. There is a big reform movement and there is governments in Latin America who are very reform-minded now. It pretty much follows the uh, political spectrum over there. The general left-leaning governments are saying we don't want to follow US-based war on drugs policy. We are very comfortable with reform. So that's the one part of the world where... You know, government representatives are saying, yes, we, uh, uh, we think time, time for a big change. I wouldn't overemphasize that, and I'm sure we can talk about it in questions, but that does not necessarily mean root and branch reform, but it does mean there are the political conditions where uh, countries may want to do something significantly different. Very quickly, inconvenient truths, because a lot of the audience know this from IDPC publications or their own work. Basically, our analysis is that... Um, that that system that I say that everybody's been enthusiastic about has been set up over 50 years on the basis that you will eventually reduce the problems by a supply reduction and um, a deterrence approach. And generally the situation is now, is I, I, I'm, I'm, this is always complex and open to debate, but I think it's pretty conclusive that anybody who takes the care to look at 50 years of evidence will say that that is not now a sustainable policy. Uh, supply reduction, what we generally find is uh, it is possible for very expensive, very long-term long supply reduction policies to change the drug market, but it's not been possible to reduce the overall scale of the drug market, and actually most of those changes have uh, unintended consequences. So you, you get in control of uh, drug production or supply in one part of the world, it moves to another part of the world and uses, usually causes more harm than uh, the original situation. Similarly, on the prevention and deterrence side, it's a very strong view all the way through the 60s, 70s, 80s, it still is uh, to some extent now, is that if you manage to create the conditions where uh, young people and potential drug users were sufficiently 
uh, afraid of being caught out as drug users and sufficiently afraid of the punishments or consequences that will happen, that will have a, 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 the effect of reducing the overall level of people who choose to use drugs. All the evidence suggests that's not true. It isn't, isn't, uh, isn't achieving what it aimed to achieve. And my contention is if, if those top two were working a bit better, there wouldn't really be much of a political dilemma. If governments could say to their populations, we've been tough on drugs and it's working, you know, pretty much that works politically. But the, uh, the inconvenient truth is it's not achieving what uh, most members of the public or government would want. Unintended consequences, uh, basically there are real downsides accepted in the United Nations, accepted by most analysts that by implementing this system and different aspects of this system, obviously law enforcement and, uh, and some of our deterrence programs, there are unintended or there are negative consequences of doing that, not least wasting an awful lot of money, but also uh, negative consequences in terms of health, social functioning um, and human rights. Uh, and that brings me on to conflict with other areas of policy. The big two that IDPC uh, uh, always focuses on is, um, is public health policy. You know, if you have a public health policy to reduce HIV or reduce overdoses or reduce other infections amongst drug-using community, uh, that comes into direct conflict with drug policies that take an entirely different approach to that same group of people. Uh, similarly, and, and less debated, but similarly with development policy, you have a whole structure of... Uh, national governments and a whole structure in the UN dedicated to try to alleviate the poverty and social exclusion of marginalised groups um, and billions of pounds gets put by the international community into that and um, you have a drug using communities or drug communities where there's a lot of drug use or a lot of uh, drug markets are marginalised communities so your drug policy does diametrically opposite things with that than your de development policy and these are real fundamental problems for uh, uh, for uh, integrated policy. And finally, on that point, uh, uh, harm reduction, it's, it's, it's debated an awful lot. Everybody knows about uh, uh, the uh, ins and outs of that. But basically, the fact of the matter is, is those activities and those interventions that seem to be, uh, that are showing real success are the ones that say, well, we're not going to try and eradicate the drug market. We're not going to try and create a drug-free world. We're going to try and resolve the HIV infection or resolve the drug-related crime or reduce the, uh, uh, the health and social dysfunction that goes with drug markets. And they look pretty successful, you know, pretty, you know, pretty incontrovertible evidence base around the world that doing things like that that don't primarily aim to win the drug war or eradicate a drug market you know, look like a pretty good use of taxpayers' money which seems to me research-based, pretty incontrovertible, but it creates a political problem for, uh, to some extent for any government around the world because they haven't been brave enough to uh, say, therefore, we will change our policy and we're comfortable. Very broad lessons. Uh, there's no silver bullet. Drug policy is not going to save the world. Um, but you can do sensible things and you can do really stupid things and governments should be big enough to be uh, very careful to get it right. You need to be very clear on what your objectives are as a society and as a government. Put pragmatism before symbolism. Most political authorities don't. And just a little bugbear of mine, whenever I hear a politician say we're trying to give the right message, drives me mad. Um, and it's not only, a, it's not only, a, it's not only a, a throwaway line. Giving the right message is very expensive. It's very expensive in countries like us. We spend an awful lot of money trying to give the right message and that's taxpayers' money, and I'm a taxpayer, I don't like that. And second of all, it's expensive in lives, and I always use the Russian example here. Russian government is absolutely clear at the moment, Putin's government, absolutely clear. It has probably the biggest opiate epidemic of the world at the moment, and it's absolutely clear that the most important thing for its government is to give the right tough message to 
drug users or potential drug users, uh, tens of thousands, I don't know what the, 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 if there are any estimates, but tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Russian citizens will die because of that policy, who would not die if they, they pursued a, foreign, uh, a different policy. So giving the right message isn't an easy soundbite. It costs an awful lot.